having a beer after a hard day's work once meant putting up with a six o'clock swill. The swill is not only unpleasant, it's also dangerous. Those who like beer, and surprisingly it's still legal to like it. South Australia joins all other states in abandoning the six o'clock swill. You're tuned to the six o'clock swill, the least woke podcast in the southern hemisphere in fact we should win an oscar for that i think valiantly fighting the war against wowserism and stupidity with me is tim blair from the new south wales central coast i'm nick cater and later on we'll be joined by the great brendan o'neill chief political correspondent i think he calls himself these days of spiked but first look we we haven't had an election declared here yet have we tim but it feels like there's one sort of brewing at any moment we're going to go into sort of election mode i would think yes uh, we've been in we've been in a hovering kind of state in fact by the time um, this podcast is uh, in listenable form uh, the election may well have been called uh, so you know, we anticipate basically <laughs> i mean what's going to change when they do actually call it like uh, it, it'll be exactly the same there'll be no mm. real great difference will there that i can perceive to uh, how things have been in the last month or so uh, there may be a slight uh, slight increase in the formality of it but uh, I doubt whether there'll be um, any real material difference. Now, we go into something called caretaker mode, don't we, which is where the politicians aren't allowed to make any decisions anymore. It's all left to the bureaucrats, uh, which worries me intensely. So I just hope, <laughs> let's get this election over. Let's get a government in of some sort, at least. I don't know. I did, you know remember when uh, the parliament was stalled for quite some time following, I think, the 2010 election? Was, was mm. that the Gillard, uh, Gillard Tony Abbott election? Uh, finally resolved by those two fake independents from New South Wales. But uh, we were without a government for some, some time. Nobody noticed any difference. In fact, life for many may have improved. Yeah. So maybe, maybe, maybe you shouldn't be too quick to, um, to hasten uh, the governmental continuity. Yeah, I believe I'm right in saying I don't think Belgium's had a government for about five years i think they continually <laughs> and, and yet they can still make chocolate right and um good on them and and that bit you know that sort of soapy beer wheat beer it still comes out it all happens without government it's a marvelous thing yeah that's where they're the most government inclined among the most government inclined people on earth i mean isn't belgium like the headquarters of uh, eu and all that sort of stuff so um you know they've plainly got another rule for themselves than they impose on the rest of, uh, of Europe, right? Mm, they do. They do. First, first, Tim, I think we should cross to that parallel universe known as the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. <laughs> the coverage of anything doesn't ever resemble anything you ever recognise as real life, but certainly not the election. The, the, the big story, apparently, uh, this week in, in everything that happened was that some angry bloke had a go at Scott Morrison in a pub in Newcastle. So this is, this is, let's have a listen, shall we? At the Edgeworth Tavern on the outskirts of Newcastle, the Prime Minister received a bollocking from a patron. You can have a million dollar house. You can have 250,000, like, listen to me for a change, right, 250,000 in the bank. You can have negative gearing, franking credits, but a, a, a disability pensioner can't have any income. The man told the Prime Minister he'd worked in the mines for 30 years, but was now struggling to survive. 
He also had some other demands. You know another promise that you made? Okay, well, look, we, we've, hey, we've had quite a chat. Hey, yeah, no, you know, you've got to have an integrity commission. Oh you, hey, hey, you better f***ing do something. No, okay. I don't care. I'm sick of your bullshit. <laughs> You'd think that the prominence that was given on the ABC, I think top of the bulletin, top of every show for about 24 hours, that this was a very significant moment, that this was a, a Morrison voter turning on him. Good on the Australian. Eh? Good on Liam Mendes in the Australian for tracking down pensioner Ray Jury. Um, for whom I've got some sympathy, actually. He's got asbestosis, which is a horrible disease. But, oh, Jesus, yes. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you can understand why he's not feeling too good about the world. But here's the thing, Tim. It says, uh, Drury is a lifelong Labour voter who, <laughs> for the first time ever, will not be voting Labour at the upcoming federal election. I think he really wanted to have a go at Anthony Albanese, but Albanese hadn't turned up at the Edgeworth Tavern. So, so he went for ScoMo, yeah. Politician, like, he could see. <laughs> the next best thing. Uh, so why isn't he... Did, did we explore any deeper why uh, he's not voting Labour? Because this is an election they've got a chance to actually win. It's the one he's bailing on. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but um, maybe he's got his um, various issues with uh, the ALP's candidate as well. Uh, Newcastle's a fascinating place electorally these days. It's um, an unlikely kind of swing area, isn't it? Because it was uh, so Labour for so long. And uh, now it's uh, now it's in the mix, as they say. Yeah, and I, I, Newcastle's probably a long shot for the coalition, but Paterson is the next seat up on the coast. It's a good chance. And, and what's been happening in Paterson, of course, it's got, it includes part of the Hunter coal mining district and yep. election after election, it's been gradually moving the coalition's way because, you know, if you're a coal miner these days, why would you vote Labour, the party that wants to shut down your entire industry? So there, there is this big transformation in votes. And um, anyway, the, the PM hasn't won Ray Drury's heart, obviously. But um, yeah, we'll see. We'll see how, I, I don't think it's the open and shut case this election. I, I see that. Mm. Um, I think it's $1.60 you can get on sports bet at the moment for a Labour majority. Yeah. It's not great value, maybe. Yes. No, it is... Um, we, we're going to see what you're talking about, obviously, with uh, with Newcastle and seats around the Hunter, or areas around the Hunter, is a continuation of um, of the regional urban divide that's, uh, mm. that perfectly characterises uh, Labour's difficulties in previous elections, that they've got... Uh, you know, they can, they can more or less sew up most of the inner city. Uh, they might yield, they'll be yielding ground uh, to the Greens, obviously, by degrees. But, you know, that's their sort of zone. But their traditional sort of base is, uh, as you point out, uh, they're moving away. They're, um, they're, they're, their best interests are not served by voting Labor. It's, uh, it's a fascinating divide and uh, one that, of course, the coalition hasn't um, been perhaps swift or... Uh, nimble enough to fully cash in on just yet. This is a long trend, isn't it? 20 years at least, I think, uh, more than that, that, you know, this great inversion of politics, not just in Australia, but in the United States, in Britain too, where, yeah. you know, formally, I mean, the States, it's interesting. You remember that book came out, I think it's around about 2001, called Whatever Happened to Kansas, decrying mm. the fact that blue-collar people you know, we're showing this complete false consciousness and voting Republican, for goodness sake. <laughs> yeah, um, lower, lowercase l liberals in the US famously miss the obvious, don't they? There's a, there's, 
we're seeing that now with um, various towns, border towns, especially in Texas, which have high Hispanic populations. Now, the dream mm. of the left in the US is that they will sufficiently Espanol Texas to the point where it's um, it's a locked-in Democrat state, uh, at which point you've got California, New York, Texas. It's, it's going to be really hard to um, ever defeat uh, the Democrats if they've got all those states in their corners. In their corner, but Hispanic folk, God bless them, are famously socially conservative. Yeah, and that is Republican homeland. That is where the Republicans live, and we're seeing a lot of that that now occurring. And uh, Republicans are now sewing up the family vote, the women's vote, over issues like gender and so on. Um, Democrats have raced ahead too far, way ahead into into a crazy zone where um where they're actually now shedding uh, traditional supporters in, in areas like health and, uh, and uh, women's rights. Uh, these used to be just, you couldn't lose if you were a Dem. Now they're gone. They're, they're, they're leaking away. Well, we, we started this discussion last week. Let's carry it on. So in Florida, where you know the Republican administration under Ron DeSantis has passed some entirely uncontroversial legislation basically limiting the ability of teachers to proselytize or or or, or um, groom even kids yeah. in in years k to three right and and um, you know by not you know, limiting the extent to which they can teach them about transgender rights so completely yeah. uncontroversial but joe biden the democratic president has come out against this so which means he is in favor of proselytizing yeah all sorts of nonsense to cater <laughs> i know I, it's bewildering how's it going to work for them at the at the midterm elections let alone the presidential election it's not hardly a vote winner is it you know let let, <laughs> let me let me screw up your kids for you and it's driven great attention to some of the personalities involved in the florida education system who um well, let's just say that the vetting procedures haven't been all that great. Uh, you'll you'll see various uh, uh, accounts on Twitter of um, of well people who are very aggressive about informing kindergarten and grade one and grade two and grade three kids about their same sex partners and so on. And this is only going to further drive people away from from a Democrat supported policy. It's, uh, it doesn't really matter that it's a solitary state at the moment. Because it's an it's an indicator of a national movement on behalf of the Democrats, and it's 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 going to work very well for the Republicans if the Republicans are smart enough. Certainly, DeSantis is, but uh, if the Republicans are smart enough to um, properly inform and um, and uh, and move the public towards them, the ABC, Tim, we've commented before how they have a a jihad against comedy. They don't they don't want any <laughs> comedy comedy in any form. On the oh they, no they do no don't come on they they do they they approve some forms of comedy just not the stuff that anyone would laugh at they <laughs> they 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 love the sort of comedy that you applaud at yeah that you you know you, you, they'll love a, a a good old John Howard joke and they'll be clapping right on sister yeah yeah exactly sort of you know uh, you know well Mel- Melbourne Comedy Festival comedy is that that. Melbourne Comedy Festival should be sued, don't you think? I mean, under under any kind of accuracy trade description, that that is, that that sentence is a lie. Yeah, there's no comedy and there's very little 
very little festive element to it. You just get yelled at about the climate, from what I understand. I mean, yeah. I've gone to it for the best part of twenty years. Um, you know, when they threw, when they took Barry Humphrey's name off the main award for performers at the comedy festival, it was kind of an indication that they were going in a non-comedy direction. Yeah. Anyway, your point about the ABC. What, what are they? What are they doing now? Well, no, no, let's just press on with the Melbourne Comedy Festival. Melbourne and comedy in the same sentence don't go together anymore anyway. No. It's like no. an oxymoron. Did you see, this may not be true, I was in Shari Markson's show last Sunday and she threw this one at me. One of the performers at the Melbourne Comedy Festival this year will be Grace Tame. Oh, she's hilarious. Scowler-in-chief. Yeah. The, the, the Scowler of the Year, Grace Tame, is going to be the Melbourne Comedy Festival. I, I, I kind of think that's a good thing. I, I always thought she needed to lighten up a bit. Has she got like? Has she done many stand-up sets? I mean, has she ever played the improv? Where, where's what's her sort of comedic background? Like, presumably, she's taking the place of an actual potentially funny person. Is this true? Should well, should... I don't. No, no, no. There, there are no potentially funny people who would apply for a gig at the Melbourne Comedy <laughs> Festival. So they wouldn't get it. I don't. But I don't know. You've got to be tough in the comedy game, haven't you? I don't know whether she's got the, you know, the first the first sort of get off and yowl and yelp. It'll be, you know. Oh, hecklers, man! You'd oh. be a oh, you'd be, you'd be shamed on the front page of the Age if you heckled Grace. You would. Good lord, that that would be a death heckle. You'd uh, you'd be going out on that one. You'd never get a Twitter account for the rest of your life. <laughs> you'd you know? be you'd outlawed. Be... <laughs> you'd, be, you'd be written out of polite society. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, the evil entity who heckled Grace Tame. <laughs> That's no, you can't be doing that. And I encourage people to to mind their manners. Yeah, like people would whisper behind their hands when every time you went to a shop. Oh, that's the guy. That's the guy. Who, who, mm. He yelled out. You know, tell a joke to Grace Tame. It would be the you know, Carlos the goat. You know, beep. <laughs> he heckled Grace Tame once. Yeah, the goat enthusiast. Yeah, you yell one bit of abuse, and that's what you get known as for the rest of your Tim, life. Tim Blair, the disgraced Grace Tame heckler today. <laughs> yeah, photographed outside his home. You know, like that. be like they'd be uh, it'd be like current affairs style crews running running after you down the street with a handheld camera. You know, come back. You know. Mr. Blair, Mr. Blair. You know. <laughs> <laughs> we digress. The ABC yes. and comedy. So the, the, their jihad on comedy, it reached new heights on Thursday when they decided not to run Clive Palmer's National Prep Club speech. I mean, probably the funniest show on TV in a long while, and they didn't run it. I don't know why. Which, they, which, they... which, which uh, venue is he playing in Melbourne? <laughs> Is he down at the Laugh Factory, the Chuckle Hut, uh, you know, <laughs> an evening with Clive. <laughs> he was hilarious. Anyway, for some reason, the ABC thought it was dangerous to run him. I think they thought he was going to spread anti-vaxxer propaganda or something around. But anyway, whatever it was. Well, so what? They... Like, even if he did, like, what are people going to do? Get unvaxxed? We're at 95% or something. Well, it's, it's like that great panic over... Um, over that tennis boy earlier in the year that he was here that he was going to scare people out of being vaccinated when we were way over 90% double vax. Like, I, I don't get what the panic is. No, they expect there's going to be cues outside the doctor's surgery next day. You know, can you de-Pfizer me, please, doctor? <laughs> Commence the extraction, nurse. You know, like, it does, I don't think it works that way, you know. Um, but, yeah, like, and also, 
let the man talk. Why not? You know, he's a candidate. He, he runs oh, ads yes. in magazines and newspapers. He runs ads in the in the nine newspapers. I don't see what the issue is with him speaking to a bunch of wallies on the ABC or at the press club or whatever he spoke. I mean, you and I, as you know, News Limited, well, News Corporation employees, we, 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 we've always been great fans of his. I mean, every three years, he chucks $100 million of advertising at <laughs> it. And it, we're rather grateful for it. Oh, so the same with the nine papers, the same with uh, with television networks, uh, various political magazines. It's, uh, you know, he's, a, he's, he's generous with his money. Got to, got to say that. I'm not, I'm not sure. Any, like, although the ads are a bit a bit iffy because um, I don't think his proofreaders have learned that Labor in Australia is spelt without a U. <laughs> Maybe that's some, some sort of comedic jest that's going on over my head or something. I don't know. But uh, I think you get some proofread in India because it's cheaper. But, oh, right. He's, um, out, he's outsourcing, yeah. Yeah. But, the, <laughs> but why do they think anybody, even if he came out and said the most outrageous thing about, mm. you know, Fauci or something, why, why, why would they think people would believe him? I mean, just, you know, he, he, he came out the other day, as he always does, the next Prime Minister of Australia will be Craig Kelly. Yeah. Does anybody believe that? No. Maybe we should. Um, it's taking a cue from the the Oscars. When 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 Clive Palmer is speaking at, at say the press club or anywhere, just leave Will Smith in the front row, and as soon as he steps over a, a predetermined <laughs> line, Will can come on and slap him, and uh, and everyone can can then give Will a standing ovation. Although that was weird, wasn't it? He, Will Smith got a standing ovation after hitting someone and then got banned for 10 years mm. by the same mm. organisation, by the Academy, which is the mm. greatest bogus name ever. It's just the Academy of Motion Pictures of Art and Science or whatever the full title is. It's like the Pons Institute. <laughs> it's utterly bogus. But we can't keep relying on the Americans. Maybe the better thing would be Will Smith came over and just gave some private slapping classes to the ABC's Andrew Probit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is how you do it. You've got to come in over the top. No, Andrew, Andrew. Look, look, watch my hand. You've got to... That's it. That's Now you've got the curve right. And then you bring it down on the shorter man. Down. And uh, that, at which point you turn on your heel. You've got that right, Andrew. You've got, yeah, that's very nice. Um, a, a beautiful pirouette, and now mince off in back into the audience. That's the way <laughs> to do it. I think he'd be a he'd be a natural after a few lessons. Well, probing to his credit, he did break the ABC's ban on the Clive Palmer, Palmer speech, and he did report it on the seven pm yeah. news. He, he reported that Clive accurately, as it happened, accurately he reported that Clive Palmer had said that he personally would be preferencing the Greens ahead of Labor. And the Liberals, but but he missed the punchline. What what Palmer actually said was, like the ABC, I'll be putting the Greens ahead of Liberal and Labour. <laughs> See, he could play. He could play Melbourne. You know, that's that's a genuine laugh line. That's that's not too bad. I think he'd be he'd be a, a stand up performer out there. Like he'd be he'd be pretty good. I'd I'd pay to see Clive uh, do an hour of. Uh, an air of uh, observational humour. I mean, he basically does it anyway. Well, Clive and Andy could be Clive and Andy with Probin playing the straight guy. Yeah, I don't think he's got any other role. <laughs> I I mean, <laughs> he's pretty much typecast as the uh, the grindingly straight, dull-eyed patsy for, as a foil to Clive Clive's whip song, comic stylings. Mm, mm. 
Now, what else on the election? Have we missed anything? Have we co- we covered the whole gamut? I mean, we haven't. Done, yeah. We don't have one yet. Yeah, we we've might done do, enough. Say, but... We've done everything from A to C. That's about enough, isn't it, on the election? But in breaking news, I can personally reveal that I am morally superior to Jeffrey Robertson. People may recall Jeffrey Robertson, the um, hypotheticals host, who, um, although Australian by birth or legend. Um, He's uh, a British-accented human rights activist these days, of course. Has been for a mm. long time. The Assange hugger, isn't he? Oh, he was a big Julian booster, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And yeah. uh, and he's very upset, as people should be, I suppose. Very upset by incidents in the Ukraine. He doesn't like Vladimir Putin very much. And Jeffrey's decided to take action. He is not. He's not taking this lying down. He has stood up and announced... Today, on, uh, we're recording this on Saturday, he stood up and announced in the Australian newspaper, it will pain me not to go to the Salzburg Festival. Hang on a second, let me just look that up again. <laughs> I've, just, I've just lost Jeffrey. Let me find it again for you. It will pain me not to go to the Salzburg Festival to hear soprano Anna Norebko sing, or to Covent Garden to see Valeri Girgiv conduct, or to Melbourne to watch Daniel Medvedev at the Australian Open. But these morally deficient individuals have refused to step up to the plate. So it's a Jeffrey Robertson boycott. But I've got to tell you, man, I'm, I'm way ahead of him on this. Way ahead. For I, for decades, my entire life, in fact, I have boycotted <laughs> opera, orchestras and tennis. So I'm very grateful to have Robbo on board. It's just taken him a damn long time, you know, like, um, you know, and he's shouting it from the rooftops. I've never declared this to anyone. I didn't think anyone would, would, would mind what my position is on uh, on the, these things he's speaking of. But, uh, yeah, there you go. Jeffrey is not taking it, and I guess that's the end of the war. Uh, Putin's defeated. Hang on. You, you, you never boycotted the Formula One Grand Prix. I've seen you there. I have actually seen you trackside. Well, that's a high cultural event, though, isn't it? It is, yeah. That's that's nothing. That's nothing Nancy-ish. And but besides, think- they've kicked they've kicked out the Russian driver anyway. They only had one, and he's gone. <laughs> Look, I, Jeffrey Robinson's a very sincere, honest, believable guy, full of integrity. Yes. But do you think he's full he, of ever, something. he he ever had any plans to go to the Melbourne Formula One Grand Prix, which he now claims to be boycotting? Oh no, no, he's, he's boycotting the Australian Open. Oh, the Australian Open. Okay. Except this, he, he spells it Australia Open, so maybe he's not that familiar with tennis either. Okay. Okay, so we, we don't a, have any Russian drivers, I take it, in the In the Grand Prix? No, no. There was, there was one over the last year or so. He wasn't very good, and uh, he had a, a massive uh, oligarch sponsor <laughs> behind his, the team he drove for. So for fairly obvious reasons, he's... Um, he ain't driving this year, so uh, that's, all, that's all. Everyone who's attending the Grand Prix is morally pure. And they can they can be at peace with themselves. Mm. There mm. are no issues with any other nationality or nation on earth besides Russia. The, the airport at Sydney was been clogged for the last two days. Actually, can't move. And this is people. A lot of people going down to Melbourne for the Grand Prix. Yeah. And a um, friend who runs Qantas, the Irishman, the Irishman. Yeah, it said yeah. that he doesn't like being referred to as the Irishman. He gets upset. But anyway, he he runs Qantas. He said that the problem with it wasn't it wasn't that airport security didn't have enough people on, or that the system was you know just not well organised. It was the passengers' fault. They yes, were not they're... match fit for flying. <laughs> they were out, of, out of travel practice. Out of so, travel practice. <laughs> you know, 
I don't know about... It's an interesting theory, but, uh, you know, if you're capable of walking into a supermarket and going through a checkout line, pretty much a similar similar skill set, isn't it, to going through Mm. an airport? There's not a vast amount of differences. If you're trained up at groceries, if you've got, you know, you've finessed... Uh, the fruit and veg section. You, you've you've mastered meat and dairy. You're pretty much set mm. to take on the airport challenge. You'd imagine. I mean, unless airports are vastly different since the last time we were allowed to fly two years ago. Unless something's changed and you've got to now barrel roll through the security thing or something like that, or there's some kind of personal flight element that you've got to prove that you're a aerodynamic. You can achieve aerodynamic uplift. As a, as, a, as a human being, unless there's some massive alteration. I don't know what, uh, what the Irishman's telling us about. There are some additional skills required for going through airport security that aren't needed going through the checkout. I mean, well, presenting a fake ID or fake, uh, <laughs> fake um, <laughs> vaccine data, yeah. <laughs> it's pulling your aerosol out of your hand luggage. You've got yeah. to do that. And, and your laptop. Uh, look, let's face it, they're not hard skills to learn, are they? So I... I think no, they were right. around previously. We've we've all had those. Yeah. Um, uh, no, I don't think that's a, a new part of the um, the the airport decathlon. But um, I'd like to experience this thing they call travel one day, and I'll, I'll report to you on um, on how it goes. Hopefully, by, hopefully by June. And I'm gonna I'm gonna map out um, some lines and uh, put some bollards around on the floor. Um, and just do a bit of you know airport practice before I show up, just so I don't cause any uh, uh, delays. Although I'm not sure about flying Qantas, I've I've been against that airport airline ever since the only in-flight meals were potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> Blighted ones at that. <laughs> oh god, yeah. <laughs> I've been looking at at, at flights actually because I'm I'm vaguely thinking of going back to the UK, looking at international flights, and thinking which is the freest way to fly. Certainly not Qantas. So I'm thinking of going via the States, Tim. I'd like your advice on this. I, I thought United Airlines looked good. At least you're going through. I wanted a flight with a stopover in Florida, but no, mm. they stop in California, unfortunately. But anyway. No, no, you can I, get to Dallas. You can get straight yeah, to Yeah, that's Fort true. Worth. Yeah. I, I thought that the regime on an American airline might be a little less, um, you know, uh, authoritarian than it is here. You know, we have to put a mask on. But, but no, I, when I looked oh, up no. the rules for Delta Airlines... You you are allowed to take your mask off, but while having a sip or a bite of your food, but you have to put it back on afterwards. So you can't take your mask off for the entire um, meal. Meal. Um, that sounds. Got to sort of lift it up. Could you cut a hole in the mask? Put a straw through. Yeah, technically. Yeah, you like get your food vitamised and suck it. I don't know. That might be the way to. <laughs> It might be the way to um, inhale a steak. But if if you cut a hole in it, even even a wider hole, it might allow some actual mouth activity. Mm. I mean, mm. you'd be technically kind of sort of fulfilling the requirements of the rule, wouldn't you? Like, couldn't you argue it? You need Jeffrey Roberts in the new corner to argue it at the Hague or something. I don't know if you've seen Re- Rebecca has been right from the start of COVID. She equipped herself with a mask right at the start, mm. uh, made of lace, a, a, a lacy fabric, which is, of course, <laughs> it's got holes sort of three centimetres wide all over it. And it's it's quite a pretty little thing when really, you put it on. And um, 
Do you know she's never, ever been challenged? Nobody's ever said to her, look, that's not the right kind of mask. <laughs> she's yeah, it's, got a it's mask. It's plainly not fulfilling any protective role at all, yeah? None, none yeah. whatsoever. Uh, it's great. It's fully ventilated. You have no problem breathing through it. I, I wanted one myself, but I thought I'd look a little bit, um, <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> so it's basically a face doily. Yes, basically. You can get That's away with right. it. There is nothing to say what size the holes should be. No. Well, it might stop really fat germs. Yeah, yeah. It might stop a virus that's a, you know morbidly obese from somehow <laughs> entering or exiting your body. It might stop, you know, the Clive Palmer of the coronavirus yeah. from uh, from waddling into your face. But oh, yeah, apart yeah. from that, it seems it seems to be not wouldn't be that helpful. No, you'd never get you'd never get fat COVID. You wouldn't get. Fat oh no no no! You you'd only get the far less uh, serious scrawny COVID. <laughs> but a friend of mine in Melbourne has used just the one mask throughout this entire COVID caper. Well, a paper one. Yeah, just the standard one. You you know he he bought it fairly early doors from a pharmacy, and he's a frugal chap. And um, he has worn that. It's got it's got coffee stains on it. He's had it for so long that it <laughs> it carries more viruses than are known to science. It it would have to be the most germy garment in the history of the planet. It it, it you know it looks like it's been dragged through in a, a remote Mexican toilet. And uh, it is, and he, he proudly wears it. People stare. Um, about it. He's not self-conscious about it. He just thinks it's uh, it's making a, a, a punk-like fashion statement. I, I guess that's his, his view. But um, yeah, it, it, the the mask is actually far more dangerous than him in terms of any kind of viral load. <laughs> it, it's going to have to be incinerated, like and not in an ordinary incinerator. You know, one of those things that atomizes objects. That's uh, an ultra kind of super torch thing at ten million degrees or something. It's going to need something like that, and then it's going to Whatever microscopic remnants are still around are going to have to be buried thousands of feet below the Earth's crust. Tim, to, to, to the, the hardest, you know, the, the most challenging question of our era, what, what is a woman? Did you catch Alex, Alex Antic, Senator Alex Antic, in the Senate Estimates Committee? Can someone please provide me with a definition of what a woman is? <coughs> Department of Health. Definition of a man, definition of a woman. Anyone? It's pretty basic. Basic stuff. Professor Murphy. <laughs> there, look, I think there are, there are a variety of definitions. And I, I think Just a simple perhaps, one. Perhaps to give a, a more fulsome answer, we should take that on notice. You're going to take on notice yeah. the question of what a woman is? No, well, there, there are a variety. It's a very... It's a very uh, it's a very contested space at the moment, Senator. It's not I just mean, a woman who's born a woman. But there are definitions in terms of how people identify themselves. So we're happy to provide our working that definition is on those. One of the, I've only been here two years. That's the best thing I've seen thus far. Apparently, I, I didn't catch it, but apparently Scott Morrison was asked this question on Friday. Could you define for us what a woman is? Yeah, a member of the female sex. Member of the female. Why couldn't Brendan Murphy say that? You'd have to ask him. Yeah, but he's one of your senior health. He's the senior health bureaucrat. Why is it so difficult, do you think? Well, I don't think it is. A woman is a member of the female sex. I think that's 
pretty straightforward. Anthony Albanese, I don't think, has been asked the question yet. I wonder how he's going to manage with it because it's a tricky one on the left, isn't it? I mean, oh yeah, I mean, this remember remember John Howard's barbecue stoppers, the questions that would kind of give pause to Australians across the broad sweep of our culture, Australians from all walks of life would uh, would would stop when they heard a certain issue raised at a barbecue. This question, what is a woman, is a leftist and bureaucrat stopper. They have to really think hard about this. And generally, as as, um, as Brendan Murphy did, uh, stall for time, buy a bit of time, so that you're taking it on notice, which means that you've got to actually do some research to come up with an answer for what is a woman. This is this is where we live now. This is this is 2022. And if you ask someone what a woman is, they'll go, get right back to you. I'm going to have to look this up. Uh, it's going to take some time. I'll, I'll, I'll get the committee together. And then they'll, they'll sort it out. And, uh, and an answer, you might get one within um, six to eight working days. This is crazy. Because in the States, what's happened is that the, the left, the woke, are now accusing the right of launching a culture war, culture war agenda on this issue like we started it apparently according to them like it's just perfectly normal yeah. right i mean everything they've done on teaching kids about transgender yeah. activism and everything that's yeah. normal yeah the, yeah what we're doing is starting a culture war against that as if we changed everything we started this culture war the same way ukraine started the russian invasion yeah it's it's a total inversion it's like why why are you fighting back when we do these terrible things? Why are you trying to stop us from dominating your lives, you warriors? <laughs> Here we were, innocently stomping all over your children's right to an innocent existence, and you stand up and assert, like godless monsters, some sort of parental authority. What gives you... you you're some, you've got some nerve, mister. Carrying on like that. You Call off your warfare and let us go back to dominating your planet. Well, I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast an old friend of the Six O'Clock Swill, Brendan O'Neill from London. Brendan, welcome back to the Swill. Hi, Nick. Always a pleasure. And look, I've got to apologise on behalf of uh, Tim. He's he's um, he's taking the afternoon off to go to the Royal Easter Show. For you and I, still at work, like me, you must be bemused by the Catania Brown Jackson instance in the United States. That was the the confirmation hearing for her nomination to the Supreme Court at which she failed to uh, be able to answer the question, what is a woman? We've played that a couple of times on this podcast. I won't do it again, but I will play you, Brendan, if I may, just an extract. And I wouldn't normally bore an overseas guest with an extract from the Senate (laughs) Estimates Committee in Canberra, but on this occasion, I think you'll appreciate why it's worth listening to. Can someone please provide me with a definition of what a woman is? (laughs) Department of Health. Definition of a man, definition of a woman. Anyone? It's pretty basic. It's basic stuff. Professor Murphy. <laughs> there, look, I think there are, there are a variety of definitions. And I, I think a simple perhaps, one. perhaps to give a, a more fulsome answer, we should take that on notice. You're going to take on notice yeah. the question of what a woman is. No, well, there are a variety. It's a very... It's a very uh, it's a very contested space at the moment, Senator. It's not I just mean, a woman who's born a woman. But there are definitions in terms of how people identify themselves. So we're happy to provide 
our working that definition is on one of the, I'm, I've only been here two years. That's the best thing I've seen thus far. So that was Dr. Brendan Murphy, by the way, your namesake, who's the Secretary of the Department of Health here. Uh, I've got a lot of sympathy for him, to be honest. I mean, it is a con- he's right, it's a contested space. It shouldn't be, but it is. And it does seem to me it's not up to bureaucrats to be fighting the culture war, putting themselves in the way of the woke tanks as they come over the hill. That's, that's the sort of leadership we expect from politicians and church leaders and others. Um, what about you? Am I being too soft on him? No, I, I understand that. I mean, he the last thing people like that want is to be in the firing line of the culture war, which is what a lot of us, where a lot of us find ourselves these days. Um, but I think this question of what is a woman is one of the most fascinating questions of our time, precisely because so many members of the political class seem incapable of answering a question which most five and six year olds could answer, or at least they could have a few years ago. So I find that really extraordinary. And um, in the UK, it's really become one of the biggest issues in politics, bizarrely. Keir Starmer has been asked, what is a woman? And he can't, Keir Starmer, the leader of the Labour Party, he's been asked, what is a woman? He can't answer it. He was asked recently, can a woman have a penis? And he literally said, um, uh, well, mm, I mean, he just couldn't say yes or no to that question. And uh, one good thing has happened recently, which is that Boris Johnson has come out and been a bit more clear-headed and said that biological males should not be in women's sports and they should not be in women's spaces like domestic refuge, violence refuges and so on. So we finally seem to have a politician in Boris who's willing to acknowledge that there are men and women and that they have different interests sometimes. But the way in which so many people can't answer that question, I think, really speaks to how far the trans ideology has gone. And it really is time for a pushback, I think. Yeah, well, Boris, by all accounts, has done a lot of research in his younger years and knows a fair bit about women, I think. But look, I mean, look, it's enough sort of punishment for Brendan Murphy, I think, to, that he will know. He'll know this because he's smart enough. He'll know that if he was to drive 40 kilometres down the road to the Royal Hotel at Yass and stand in the front bar on a Friday afternoon, he would be the laughing stock. Um, and, and you're right that this has highlighted the absurdity of wokeness and possibly pushed us that point, you know, a stage further to the point where it collapses under the weight of its own absurdity, let's hope. But um, the real worry for me here is that you have this political class, um, you know, that have become overtaken by woke ideology and pushed around by the woke industrial complex and um, they are just so far out of touch with middle Australia now and by middle Australia I mean probably 80% of Australia that it's becoming a real threat to our civic society I think am I overstating it no not at all I think that's why the the question what is a woman is actually so important because lots of people in the UK in, in the kind of liberal media they're saying it's just a distraction it's a distraction from the cost of living crisis from the energy crisis um, the journalists who are asking this question are just trying to embarrass the Labour Party. They have this very uh, cynical view of why this has become a talking point. But I actually think it makes perfect sense, because if our politicians cannot define what a woman is, why should we trust them on any other issue? It's become a measure of how attached they are to reality and how in touch they are with ordinary people who understand biology very well and who know the difference between men and women. So I think it's very important that it's become this flashpoint question in politics because 
What we're really doing, I think, is putting politicians on the spot and saying, have you completely lost all sense of reason or do you still have a little bit left? That's what this question now represents. And I think it is a, it's a very confronting question for those who've been sucked into uh, wokeness and it's a way of dragging them out of it. And I know many people in the UK who talk about this issue more than they talk about the cost of living crisis. People are very worried really? about the cost mm. of living crisis. There's no question about that. But the thing that really animates lots of the people I speak to, and this is people outside of the media, ordinary working people, is uh, the culture war. The culture war question of how we view our history, why Keir Starmer can't say that women don't have penises, uh, why Sharon Davis, the Olympian swimmer, is currently being uh, getting death threats simply for saying that men should not take part in women's sports. People are really exercised by these questions and they want to know how and why the elites have lost the plot. So I think it's become... I think it's sensible that it's become this very central question in politics and we want them to answer it so that we know if they are serious people or not. You, let's, let's throw this back on our profession, Joe, you, know, you and me, the commentariat, right? That's what we are, whether we like it or not. Now, the, the, you know, how do, how do we get to this point, you know, that we allowed this idea to take hold and, and so many, you, you're not, and I hope I'm not, but so many... Of our fellow commentators are too afraid even to tackle this subject, and um, it, it's it's just it, you know it, how did we get to this point? And in such a short space of time, right? I mean, it seems only yesterday we were fighting the same-sex marriage issue, and now, and everybody said, "Oh, it's just, it's the 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 beginning of the slippery slope, and we're going to go down into even weirder things." And no, they said, "No, no, no." And yet, there's always a new battle, isn't there? And they seem to get every progressive battle seems to get stranger more contrived and more dangerous for the fabric of society it seems to me than the previous one yeah and i think the the trans issue really is at the center of all of that because this is not just about what is a woman and and why can't we say the word woman but from that question springs so much more what is a man? How do men and women relate to each other? What is a mother? What is a father? We know that there are National Health Trust services in the UK that now discourage the use of words like mother, and instead mm. they say birthing parent. Uh, they say chest feeding instead of breastfeeding. They say uh, people with a cervix or people who menstruate rather than woman. Uh, all of this stuff, you know, this reordering of language as well, which is always a sign that Orwellianism is taking place. Mm. And when you interfere with language in that way, what you're ultimately trying to do is to interfere with thought and to change how people think about the sexes, the relation between the sexes, family life, community life, all of which are built on, on the building blocks of recognising that there is a biological distinction between men and women, that men and women should be entirely equal, but there are times in the community when they play a different role in terms of pregnancy, childbirth, child-rearing, and so on. All of those things that we've taken for granted as societies for a long time are thrown up in the air by this new ideology. And so that's why I think it's so problematic, and that's why it's worth criticizing. I also think that's why so many mainstream institutions find themselves drawn to it because they recognize it is a way of upending tradition and it is a way of, of transforming the way people think and inculcating them into this kind of 
new ideology, this new way of approaching the world. I don't mean that in a conspiratorial way. I don't think all these institutions have got together and said, look, trans is the way to transform the people. But I think instinctively they're drawn to this because they recognize that it's a way of dislodging more traditional community-based ways of thinking and encouraging people to become more identitarian, more individualist. And that, I think, is a real problem. So it, it really does need pushback. In terms of, of how it came about so quickly, I think, I, I think it's a bit of a boiling frog situation. I actually think it's been going on for a few years. I remember six or seven years ago, uh, Bradley Manning... Um, the leaker of American secrets came out as Chelsea Manning and instantly the BBC and the Guardian uh, referred to him as her and referred to him as Chelsea and I wrote a piece saying this is really weird you know can we can we be anything we want and I got this furious pushback and I hadn't clocked at all that this kind of thing was going on it was the first time I recognized it so it had obviously been happening this notion that you can click your fingers and change your gender uh, and that was six or seven years ago, and it's got worse and worse since then. And then, of course, there's the culture of tyranny and the culture of fear. Any woman in, in particular who raises questions about this will be hounded in the most unbelievable way. If you look at J.K. Rowling, she's subjected to death threats, rape threats. People want to cancel her, but fortunately she is uncancelable. Uh, that kind of fury means that lots of ordinary people are unwilling to speak out about this because they know the trouble they'll get themselves into. So it's protected by censorship. That's the other problem. And that's why we need more freedom of thought on this issue in particular. Yeah, and I think that's one notable thing about this issue, Brendan. You'd have noticed it, but you've, 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 you've come into conflict with the transgender activists. As I have, I'm still facing a, a press council uh, complaint which we're gradually dealing with but you know they, they're not giving up you know they, they'll look for anything to attack you and and Douglas Murray has drawn attention to this um you know that this is this is a, a if we can call it a progressive movement I mean that's a travesty of the English language to call it progressive but to, it, it it is it is it, it's using the attack dog techniques and the silencing techniques uh in quite a coordinated, uh, choreographed way, that has a force quite like any other, right? And and I understand why a lot of people, probably Brendan Murphy included, just don't want to go there. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it, the, the what happens to women in particular in the UK who speak out on this issue is really quite mind blowing. I mean, I've never seen misogyny like this, and that's why. I sometimes refer to transgender activism as misogyny in drag because it presents itself as a progressive movement, but actually it is deeply misogynistic. I mean, the things they say about these women who criticize the trans ideology, they call them hag, old hags, uh, the B word, the C word, uh, all those kinds of abusive terms and, and very often misogynistic terms. And of course, they call them TERFs trans-exclusionary exclusionary radical feminists. Most of them, well, a lot of them are not radical feminists, as it happens, but TERF has basically become a modern form of saying witch. And if you're a TERF, then you deserve to be cast out of polite society. Mm -hmm. So that's why a lot of people don't want to get involved. They don't want to be branded in that way, and they don't want to risk losing their jobs, which has happened to people in the UK. They don't want to be threatened with violence, which has also happened or they don't want protesters turning up when they go to speak 
at universities. That's happened to me. And, and men get it much more lightly than women do. But when I m last spoke at Oxford, there was a, a gathering of about 40 people waving placards saying Brendan O'Neill hates trans people, which of course is not true at all. And uh, that, that kind of menacing approach to people who simply express disagreement or questioning about woke ideology, that's one of the reasons they're allowed to get away with what they do. And another good reason for insisting on freedom of speech in all situations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I know, I know. Anytime I step on Melbourne University campus these days, I'm liable to get a posse of people crowded around me saying sexist racist anti-queer liberals are not welcome here it's quite amusing in in a way but you know um look we'll, we'll get off this onto some british topics i want to talk to you about because it does seem a little bit rude of me to to wake you up at some ungodly hour in london to talk about the united states but we've got to talk about florida i think and and the situation there where a perfectly reasonable measure by by uh, the Republican administration to uh, bring some limits to the teaching of gender and transgender and and indeed sex education generally to kids you know age y to three, which seems to be quite reasonable, uh, has had this onslaught from from the activists as we expect as we just taken talked about. But I was totally taken aback. By the way, Disney, Disney Corporation has just gone, been overtaken completely by this. And, and we've got this really, I think, very significant and quite ugly confrontation between Disney Corporation and, and the governor, Ron DeSantis. Yeah, I think it's incredibly significant. And I think it's, in many ways, it's the flashpoint issue of, of wokeness right now, or whatever we're supposed to call this new ideology. Um, I think the... the there are two things to note about Ron DeSantis's bill. Uh, the first thing, which is Bill 1557, although most people won't have heard that name because it's referred to in the media as the Don't Say Gay Bill, the idea being that teachers are forbidden from talking about homosexuality or gay relationships with their kids. Uh, number one, that's just not true. The bill doesn't mention the word gay once. And all it says is that there should be no classroom instruction. I think instruction is a really important word here. No classroom instruction on issues relating to sexual orientation or gender ideology uh, between kindergarten and grade three. So basically, kids under 10 should not be given classroom instruction on sexual orientation or gender fluidity. Now, I think that is perfectly reasonable. Mm. I think most people would agree with that. It, it doesn't forbid teachers from talking about issues related to homosexuality if it were to be done in an age-appropriate way. It just says that this cannot be the focus of education for those young kids. And when you see the protesters pushing back, you think, what are you asking for? Are you asking for the right of teachers to educate six-year-olds about sexual orientation in an age-inappropriate way. That's essentially, if they're opposed to this bill, yeah. that's essentially what they're saying, which is, which is pretty extraordinary. And then the second aspect of it, as you say, is the Disney intervention, because this really does show that woke corporatism is out of control and it is meddling, increasingly meddling with democracy. So Disney says... It will fund groups that want to overthrow uh, the, the supposed don't say gay bill. It wants to do everything within its power to make sure that this bill doesn't stay law for very long. And it's basically standing up to Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis was voted 
into power by uh, more than four million people. Disney is not the, the the guys who run Disney are not elected by anybody. So this is an interference in the democratic process by a huge corporation, and I think that's really unacceptable. Yeah, but by coincidence, Brendan, I've only just got to read Vivek Ramaswamy's Woke, Woke Inc. Inside the Social Justice Scam, uh, which is a, a brilliant book. I wish I'd read it when it first came out, as people urged me to do, because what he does here is set out more clearly than ever before, I think, this what he calls the woke industrial complex, which is this ugly marriage of convenience between the activists and corporations. And, and the consequence of this, of course, and we're seeing this played out in real time in in Florida is that the corporations and essentially we're talking about some executives some of whom are good at making money some of a lot of whom aren't incidentally um, who've decided that they know better than the ordinary people right that their view on things should count ahead of the democratic consensus that that they're 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 wiser than the people who buy their products it's it's scary, it's frightening for democracy, but ultimately I would have thought it's bad for them, isn't it? I mean, I gather there's a huge backlash against Disney products. You know, poor old Mickey Mouse is taking a bit of a pounding, isn't he, over there? Yeah, I think so. They'll go out of business, won't they? Yeah, I think people often use the phrase, uh, go woke, go broke. I mean, I think it's, uh, I actually think it's it's sometimes a bit more complicated than that because what you often find is that corporations that, Reinvigorate themselves through the ideology of wokeness. They they do lose a bit of support amongst ordinary people, but they gain kind of moral brownie points in the new establishment, which I think can be very beneficial for these kinds of companies. And also, you know, there are many many mums and dads who have always wanted to take their kids to Disney World in Florida, who probably still will do that. You know, they they're more interested in keeping their kids happy than they are in. Uh, you know, flipping the bird at, at the guys who run Disney. So it can be a bit complicated. They Sometimes they don't suffer the consequences that I think they should when they behave in such an anti-democratic way. But I think the, the key thing is that here is the, you know, the left often goes on about the undue influence of big money and big donations in politics. They That's a huge issue in the United States. It's an issue in in the UK too. I'm sure it's an issue in Australia. The left Mm. talks about who's making donations to political parties. Why are we giving these rich people such influence? They, They say that all the time and they actually have a point in some instances. But then they will turn around and openly welcome Disney and actually call on Disney to interfere in the democratic process. They have cheered along as companies like Coca-Cola and Delta Airlines and PayPal have threatened to pull out of certain states in America, either for passing voting legislation, uh, the, the, the reforming voting, or bathroom bills where you have to, a bill that says you have to use the bathroom that accords with your biological sex. When states have done that, these huge companies have threatened essentially to punish them by pulling out or refusing to do the investments they said they would do. And the left has no problem with that at all. So you now have a situation where uh, the left that once called for the overthrow of capitalism is now cheering on as capitalism goes woke and threatens the democratic process, threatens laws that were voted in by people we elected. And so I think the that blind spot on the left is is really interesting and ripe for exploitation. I think we should point out their hypocrisy and point mm. out that they've become the unwitting stooges 
of interfering capitalism. If they were reasonable, they'd be thanking us, I think, for pointing this out because, yeah. you know, they're going to be unelectable. I mean, can you imagine, I mean, just suppose they, I mentioned this last week, just suppose they managed to keep, somehow keep 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 Joe Biden alive to fight the next election and and uh, Ron DeSantis is the challenger. Can you imagine the, the presidential debate where where Joe Biden is forced to stand up for the right to groom young kids in school effectively with this kind of education and and DeSantis is saying you've got to be joking. I mean th- this would just be death for the Democrats I would have thought as a major party if they pursued this to, to its ultimate degree. Oh, it, it, it would just be extraordinary. I mean, we already know how out of touch the Democrats are, how clueless Joe Biden is, and also Kamala Harris. You know, people often talk about the senility of, of Biden, which is true. He seems to be getting worse and worse, as far as I can tell. But Harris is, is not much better when it comes to geopolitical affairs or making sense or saying things that kind of connect with ordinary people. So there's a broader problem in the Democrats that goes beyond Biden's age and, and uselessness and really speaks to a party that has separated itself off from ordinary people and is increasingly dragged into these eccentric East Coast, West Coast ways of thinking. Uh, if you look at, for example, you'll often hear Democrats using word like uh, Latinx or Latinx. I'm never quite sure how to understand how to pronounce the word Latinx, which is how they refer to Latino people. But virtually no Latino people in the U.S. use that word, and in fact, many of them have said in polls that they don't like that word. It doesn't make sense to them. It feels alien to them. And yet, you have these establishment figures who still use it because it's part of the in-crowd language. It's part of the code of the new elites. You know, it's 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 very Edwardian in a sense. Are you using the right words? Do you dress mm-hmm. in the right way? Are you sending the right signals? It's it's all about inter-elite communication rather than connecting with ordinary people. And I think the Democrats have been swept along by this new language and this new way of thinking without realising or or probably without caring that it's turning off vast numbers of working class people from all sorts of backgrounds. So the next American election, I think, is going to be absolutely fascinating. If it's DeSantis versus Biden, I think it will be one of the best political showdowns we've seen in a long time. (laughs) Yeah, it'd be great. A lot of sport. Look, I mean, it, we can't, we can't, of course, go through this discussion without mentioning the Ukraine, and we're not going to be able to do it justice. But I thought you picked up on a very interesting aspect. You picked up on uh, Vladimir Putin's um, excuse, if you like, pretty weak excuse at that, for going into Ukraine, which was to denazify it. Which, of course, we find, you know, quite an offensive and absurd way of thinking about what he's done. But um, because in many ways he's behaved not dissimilar way to the you know the, the German forces in World War Two. But look, I mean, you, you, I thought in your column, recent column in Spiked, you you pointed out the dangers of really going near this word Nazi at all, whichever perspective you're coming from. Yeah, that's right. I think it, you know I've always bristled at the way in which the word Nazi and fascists are, are flung around these days by people who just want to brand their opponents in an easy, cynical way. So people who voted for Trump, you know, Trump was referred to as the new Hitler. 
Brexit was referred to as a kind of echoes of the 1930s. And we were told that fascism was had returned to the British masses and the American masses. So we've seen these kinds of ridiculous slurs a lot over the past few years. And I think what's interesting and and depraved about Putin's justification for his barbarous war on Ukraine is that he has used the language of denazification. Um, the Russian uh, contribution to the war against Nazi Germany is a, is a central part of Russia's national identity. So he's really exploiting that to try to justify his unprovoked war of aggression against a sovereign nation. And he frequently refers to the Ukrainian government as neo-Nazis. There was an article published in a state media outlet in Russia uh, about a week or so ago, which was one of the most repulsive articles I've ever read, basically saying all Ukrainians have Nazi tendencies. They will need to be re-educated. They will need to be repressed and they will need to be punished in some way if they don't let go of their Nazi views. And it referred to them as the Nazified masses. But and I started thinking that's what we've heard in the West you know, in different kinds of language, we're basically being told that there are Nazified masses in America and uh, Britain and, and France and uh, Australia. So th the way in which I think what Ukraine shows is just how dehumanizing the Nazi brand can be, because this is a war built on the Nazi slur and massacres have been carried out in the name of that Nazi slur. So I would say to anyone in the West who's still playing this cynical game of calling their opponents Nazis, you know, shame on you because you're in the you, you're pursuing the same tactic as Vladimir Putin, and that's pretty disgraceful. We we had a a very bizarre example of this during the 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 lockdown in Melbourne. You remember because we spoke about it. We spoke about it on your podcast about the extraordinary police tactics in Melbourne. You know, basically going in as a a paramilitary wing of the Dan Andrews government to just crush protesters who were just wanting to make their voice heard. Former opposition leader Bill Shorten, the man who should have known better, came out against the protesters. I mean, you would have thought anybody with a decent sense of civic justice had come out against the police, but no, he came out against the protesters. He called them man-baby Nazis. <laughs> man-baby Nazis. I don't really thought that was funny, but at the time I thought, oh, you know, it's exactly yeah. your point, isn't it? Using the word Nazis just to demonize and dehumanize people with whom you disagree. Yeah, it's it's really outrageous. And I followed some of that discussion around the anti-lockdown protests in Australia. And I was amazed by how many people on the left were referring to working class people. Lots of these were working class people as Nazis and as far mm. right and you know, uh, when uh, when people who are involved in trade unions protested and were worried about their jobs, they were referred to as Nazis too. Really, really ugly stuff and really indicative of the extent to which the left has turned its back on ordinary people. But I think there's there's a couple of problems with the Nazi slur. The first, of course, is that it's so cynical and lazy. It's just a way of writing people off without engaging with the substance of their arguments. So it's a very anti-intellectual, anti-political thing to do. And the second thing is it, it demeans the memory of the Holocaust. And that's one of my great concerns with the way in which Nazi, the accusation of Nazism has become so commonplace these days and the claim that everyone is the new Hitler 
it really relativizes what happened in the 1930s and 40s because if Nazism is everywhere, then it's not really anywhere. And, and if everyone is Hitler, then maybe Hitler wasn't that bad. Maybe he was just another run-of-the-mill, irritating politician. So they have this very warped effect on history. They, they demean historical memory and they make the Holocaust itself seem mundane. You know, just another thing that happens all the time with these horrible politicians none of us like. So I think we've really got to discourage people away from this kind of language. Firstly, because it's demeaning to the targets. Secondly, because it rewrites history in a really problematic way. And thirdly, because look at Vladimir Putin. This is where uh, dehumanizing your opponents can end up. It can end up with feeling no compunction at all about killing them because some of those Russian soldiers will genuinely believe that Ukrainians are a neo-Nazi menace to European society. And so when you implant those ideas in people's heads, you create a really dangerous situation. So I hope people in the West will look at the Ukraine situation and say, I'm not going to do this anymore because it's a it's a bad thing to do. Hey, look, before, before I let you go, that one, one thing about... Ukraine about the Russian offensive in Ukraine and the um, the woke offensive in Florida and elsewhere you know is, is it, uh, Boris Johnson has somehow gone off our radar I'd love to hear about him and I, uh, I don't know if I told you I ran into his dad Stanley uh, <laughs> at the it was at the opening night of uh, the Phantom of the Opera and um, I was lucky enough to be wow. invited to the after party where there was Andrew Lloyd <laughs> Webber would you believe and uh, I ran into Stanley wow Stanley Johnson, who turned out to be a very good egg. I mean, he's a very nice guy to have a beer with, but I, I didn't talk too much about his son. Has he, and all that business about him, um, you know, I thought quite foolishly breaking the COVID rules and then being less than truthful about it, it really upset the British people and there were talk that he might be on his way out, but he seems to have weathered that storm, has he? I think he has. That's my impression at the moment, but things could change. And I think the... The, the the Ukraine war and Boris's, you know, pretty uh, good intervention into it. You know, he's been very positive about the Ukrainian fight back and uh, the British government has assisted the Ukrainians quite well. And uh, some in Ukraine are referring to the UK as their most important ally. So Boris has actually done pretty well on the Ukraine issue. Um, and there was a sense in the UK that the Ukraine crisis would wash Partygate aside. You know, mm. why would we talk about such petty matters as Partygate when there's a war in Europe uh, that threatens to, you know, get worse and worse? I think that was the thinking, but I think it, that could change. I think, you know, war fatigue is already setting in in parts of the British media. You know what the media is like. There's a constant churn. They're always looking for the latest explosive issue. So it's very possible Partygate could come back. Um, the way I see Partygate is, firstly, it was, as you say, incredibly foolish for Boris and his um, colleagues to take part in uh, rule-breaking parties while the rest of us weren't allowed to visit anyone else's house. And they were there in Downing Street and other buildings with up to 30 people drinking booze and, and eating snacks. That's a bad thing to do. But I also think Partygate is being exploited by the Remainer wing of the elites and by people who just don't like Boris, primarily because he pushed Brexit through. So uh, there's lots of stuff over here, headlines like, if, if Boris goes, Brexit goes. So there's this desire to get rid of Boris, to overthrow Brexit, and some people see Partygate as an opportunity to do that. I really dislike what Boris and his colleagues did, but 
These are enthusiastically elected people, and I will defend their democratic right to run this country, even though they had parties that I wasn't allowed to have. And look, I mean, one thing that we're pretty envious of, I mean, certainly people like I, me are envious of, is the, the freedoms Britons now have to travel abroad. And um, if I came back to the UK, if I had to come back, I, there'd be no problem. I could just walk in, no, you know, sticks up the nose and all that other stuff they do to you. Uh, it seems to be the only sensible response with the pandemic in this phase. But, but um, here, unfortunately, we're still there are still big restrictions. If you're not vaccinated, you're not allowed to leave the country. Now, that to me is a fundamental. It's the sort of thing we used to think communist countries did, and it's it's just incredibly hurtful and demeaning to people who who make a conscious choice and a realistic choice not to get vaccinated. But where's the logic in that? <laughs> you know, if, if they're worried about their spreading COVID to the rest of the population, then surely they're subsidising their tickets out of the country. But like, I'm afraid none of it makes any sense. But you seem to have got back onto a bit of equilibrium in Britain, at least. Yeah, we, we have, thankfully, at last. And um, what's interesting about Britain at the moment is that COVID is spreading quite wildly right now. Lots and lots and lots of people in the UK have COVID. The last figure I saw was one in 13 people has COVID at the moment in Britain, which is very, very high. Um, I know lots of people who've currently got it. Uh, and so it seems like, you know, it's running riot once again, but we're holding firm. We haven't brought in any restrictions. Life is completely and utterly back to normal. And we don't even force people to isolate anymore if they catch COVID. The advice, of course, is that you should stay at home, as people have always done when they get a cold or the flu or something. People tend to stay at home. They don't visit very old relatives. People have always deployed that kind of common sense. They didn't need the law to force them to do it. So now we don't even have to stay isolated if we catch COVID, which is good because the economy would collapse if we had to do that. So we're back to normal and lots of European countries are shaking off their COVID restrictions too so that we can travel relatively freely to, to most countries. Not Spain and Italy yet, uh, which is very disappointing for British holidaymakers, but I think they'll come on board soon. So yes, I think this is the way to do it. We recognise now that this virus is here to stay. It will probably mutate. It will probably become just another member of the, the family of human diseases that we all catch every now and then. Uh, but you can't grind society to a halt or suspend civil liberty or threaten the economy just because there's a virus going around. So Britain is doing the right thing now. And the sooner other countries catch up and get back to normal, regardless of the spread of COVID, the better. We'd like to see you over here, Brendan, but don't rush the, the weather here. Um, you, you know Manchester. Manchester's a pretty wet place, right? Yeah. Manchester. I, I read, I, I looked this up. Manchester's average rainfall is 960 millimetres, which is about 36 inches or three feet in the old money. That's an annual rainfall, 960 millimetres. Sydney so far this year, first three months, has had 120 millimetres. So we've way exceeded Manchester's annual rainfall in three months. Wow. And it's going to carry That's on for about market. another month or so. Because we were told, of course, some years back that, you know, there would never rain again in Sydney because of climate change. But anyway, it has. And of course, that apparently is climate change's fault. But it's a long way around to saying we'd love to see you back, Brenda. But let's, let's do it when uh, we can sit outside and enjoy a, enjoy, a beer, enjoy a beer in the sunshine. Absolutely. Can't wait. Good on you. Thanks, Brendan. 
There is a network of hard right man baby Nazis. You know, just people who just want to cause trouble, these man babies. Stan Grant, he's not a bad bloke, Tim, but he does tend to overthink things a bit, doesn't he? Um, yes. And he wrote the piece in the, on the ABC website in the week on, on the slap, on Will Smith's slap of Chris mm-hmm. Rock. Does inherited racial trauma fit into the story, he says? Quick answer, quick answer, no, but carry on, Stan. According to Stan Grant, there were suggestions that Chris Rock's offensive joke about Smith's wife triggered childhood trauma and feels of feelings of helplessness, and he hit out. To some, this is more than childhood trauma, it's intergenerational. So what's suggested here is that there's some intergenerational trauma, racial trauma, mm. that caused him to hit out against another black man. Okay, if he's so easily triggered that his temper explodes at a joke that was pretty lame... How many people is Will Smith hitting every day? Like, how does he get down the street without slapping half a dozen people? Because you'd, he'd have, I think, far more profound triggers, wouldn't you? Every day, you'd be, you'd be, you'd be hitting your television, smashing your phone, a backhander to the car if it spoke back to you, you know, those things, that, you know, all the audio warnings you get in the car. Um, I'm not buying this intergenerational or, or childhood crap at all. As well, did uh, I don't think Stan addressed one crucial element of this is that the initial triggered response in Will Smith was to laugh at the joke. It was only, it was only mm. after he saw his missus wasn't too happy that Will decided that uh, vengeance would be his. But up to that point, mm. he was laughing along with the rest of the crowd. And um, it was uh, only after you know, he caught he caught uh, a glimpse of the, of the wife, so it's Jada's angry dial that um, he decided that a good old-fashioned uh, Hollywood slapping was in order. We're missing something, apparently, according to Stan. The, both men are scarred by racism. Okay. They're shaped by trauma. They are tied to history. History lives in the oppressed and has a deadly hold. There's a science. It's a science. It's, don't deny the science, Tim. That'd okay. be foolish. It, it's a science called transgenerational epigenetic inheritance. And, and Does that come with a multi-million dollar bank account as well? Because I'm up for that. <laughs> well, here's the clincher. Studies in rats <laughs> appear to support the idea. Well, obviously. Like, so you get a couple of rats and one of them, you make sure it's from a pretty bad, you know, not a really great background, you know, didn't go to a private school. Um, didn't go, sorry, to a private sewer. Didn't, um, didn't eat... The, the best chicken bone restaurants and uh, and didn't live in the in a decent gutter mm. and then you've got your posh rats who are <laughs> who's, they're eating really high grade carrion and excellent rot that'd be the albino yeah rats. Yeah, they're, yeah they're white yeah yeah that'd be the white they're ones. um you know they get to to gnaw on almost complete chicken legs and and they have mm. Their gutters get cleaned every once a month by rain or something. They don't live under the you know under the town in horrible sewers, and you put them against each mm. other. Is that how the experiment works? And then you decide, oh, see, look, that rat's yeah. happy as Larry. This one, the one who's he's suffering trauma for because his previous you know his his ancestors <laughs> they had really tough lives, <laughs> which is basically every mm. rat, isn't it? Yeah, well, I know there must be privileged rats. They couldn't have done the experiment. Check, check your privilege, yeah, rat. Yeah. 
he must have said. And um, the privilege. I look. My big problem with this, Tim, is in the end you can call it science, epigenetic, inherited trauma, mm. whatever you call it. It's making an excuse for poor behaviour, isn't oh, it? Oh, absolutely. For yeah. shocking behaviour, and it doesn't matter. You know, I mean, if if you do something as as crass and stupid as Will Smith did, you just take the rap for it. There's no excuse. So what's the point of looking for one? But trying to bail yourself out with some pseudo science, and, and, and if you've got some sort of, if there's a, a racial component to your grief that's caused you to lash out, why are you hitting another black guy? Stan doesn't explain that bit. He doesn't go into that. We need more. We need more rat. Well, let's see if we can get Stan on the show next yeah, week. It'd be fun. It'd be fun to actually ask him, and uh, you know, mm. I'll leave that to you, mate. I, I might I might be writing something about Stan for Monday's paper. Let's see how we go on that. Don't tell him that. We'll see if we can pull some strings. Okay. Anyway, Tim, it's been great talking to you. This is the the least woke podcast in the Southern Hemisphere by far. You can email us at nick at com. Thank you very much to Brendan O'Neill. Thank you to Tim. Thank you to our producer, Laura Thomas. We've got a producer, well, that's Tim. Good. We have a producer. That's fantastic. Laura is we're like a real podcast now. That, that is great. We're still we're still using a lot of Gibbo, our technical liaison officer. Still using a lot of his input. Gibbo, so yes, that, that's terrific. Oh, anybody else? Have I missed anybody else off the credits? Uh, Will Smith for best slap. I think we've got to give him some credit <laughs> at the academy. Banned for ten years. I mean, that's if you hit someone like that in the AFL, you probably get two weeks. You do it in the mm. NRL, and it's probably wouldn't even make the highlight reel for that nice news but 10 years it's a pretty long suspension you know, just, it's rough I, isn't it I, I didn't even know that tri- that the academy had a tribunal or a, or a, some kind of you know some sort of fight um, decision thing did they did they borrow some officials from the AFL that would have been good you know you get <laughs> you get a few grizzled old AFL veterans over to Hollywood and they sit there and go oh it was, it was an open hand mate you can't give him more than two weeks you know, put his feet up in the reserves you know, give him a shot at the under 19s well, I, I think they'll be taking precautions this year my, my bet is the whole proceedings will be held at Madison Square Gardens oh well bring it on in a, in a roped off ring yeah well even ultimate fighting would be good with some of those Hollywood types That'd be, I'd pay to see that I would thug nasty Oscar <laughs> Oscar winner <laughs> thanks Tim good on you mate Every American and LBJ is with Australia all the way. Australia is the best place in the world to bring up a family. But we will decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come. Australia. Yeah!